We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This woman doesn't know what she just ate, but she says it was unusual and delicious. We're all hungry in this city, she says. We need more of these places. There's nothing in our stores or restaurants. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. Uh, instead of offering french fries, some restaurants across the country are now calling them freedom fries. <laughs> this is a tasty burger. The first of the former McDonald's restaurants in Russia has opened in Moscow under a new name, which translates as tasty and that's it. How does Russia, a country we're told is a gas station with nuclear weapons, have a subway station that normal people use to get to work and home every single day that's nicer than anything in our country? And we all came in around 400 bucks, about 400 bucks. Um, it was $104 US here. And that's when you start to realize that uh, ideology maybe doesn't matter as much as you thought, corruption. If you take people's standard of living and you tank it through filth and crime and inflation, and they literally can't buy the groceries they want, at that point, maybe it matters less what you say or whether you're a good person or a bad person. You're wrecking people's lives in their country, and that's what our leaders have done to us. I, I was so shocked by it. I was so shocked by it. I'm really hungry all of a sudden. You want some Burger King? Yeah, I'll take some onion rings. Hey, this tastes like shit. You guys make money off of this? They're very popular, sir. A lot of people care about the environment and sustainability. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, this seriously tastes like dog shit, and you get people to buy it? Hamburgers will decide America's future. So says Malcolm Cheyune in a recent essay ruminating on the American journalist Tucker Carlson's recent visit to Moscow where he famously, or perhaps infamously, purchased a burger at Russia's new McDonald's clone, Tasty That's It. Cheyune sees Carlson's culinary adventure as reminiscent of Mikhail Gorbachev's decision to do an advert in which Russians would debate whether the fall of the evil empire was worth the introduction of fast food chains. Now the shoe is on the other foot, with Carlson highlighting how cheap food is in Russia in comparison to the United States, plagued, as is the rest of the West, with a cost-of-living crisis. But this latest fast-food fight is really only the tip of the iceberg lettuce. Since the pandemic of 2020, a feeling of malaise has crept into the West. The feeling is palpable and encompasses everything from rising costs of basic necessities to a feeling that the culture is spiralling out of control to a questioning of our basic modus operandi. What happened, some ask, to our freedoms? In this week's episode, we want to discuss whether the West is spiralling into crisis. It feels like a lot of narratives are breaking down right now, and one crisis seems to open onto another like a matryoshka doll. With a highly controversial election on the horizon in November, and the Biden administration having failed to deliver on its promise of normality, is our ideological Berlin Wall starting to crumble? To talk about these issues, we're joined with essayist and journalist Malcolm Cheyune, uh, also a friend of the show. I'm sure most uh, listeners are familiar with Malcolm. So, Malcolm, tell us a little bit about the burger theory of history. 
Well, um, the burger theory, theory of history was probably actually embraced by the Americans themselves. Uh, you not only had the Mikhail Gorbachev commercial for Pizza Hut, where you have these old, you know, Soviet boomers saying like, thanks to Gorbachev, we have economic chaos and like Russia is falling apart. And then some Soviet grandma says, well, thanks Gorbachev, we can have toppings out to the very end of our pizza. Um, and then like the American cuts in like Pizza Hut edge, like when you want to go to the edge of your pizza. But that's only half of the story of of you know, the burger theory of how societies rise and fall. The other half had less to do with burgers, actually, and more to do with ice cream, because there's a famous photo of Boris Jeltsin in an American grocery store, uh, and he's looking in, in sort of stunned silence and awe at the selection of ice cream, going, wow, I guess this hateful American capitalist empire, like, Maybe it wasn't so bad as we heard, because even though for the longest time we tried to say that, okay, the Soviet Union as a system, uh, communism, socialism, these things were superior to the West because the West, like it was chaos, it was inequality, it was a lack of planning, and so our system was better. But looking at all this ice cream, maybe your system was better. And this was incredibly appealing to the West to have these people say, well, you know, maybe you guys are really cool and better than us. Um, but Tucker Carlson's trip to Moscow recently very much illustrated that the shoe was on the other foot, as you said, Philip, um, because the original point and what people really got worked up over was the idea that uh, Tucker Carlson would interview Vladimir Putin and that this interview would sort of, I don't know, brainwash people in the West into thinking Russia wasn't the evil empire. Uh, but the interview itself was kind of a sideshow in some ways, because as many people memed about, um, Vladimir Putin wasn't particularly interested in trying to sort of sell um, sell the West on Vladimir Putin or on Russia. Like he didn't necessarily feel any urge to convince those who were skeptical. He basically followed his own whims and gave, among other things, like a 40 minute lesson on, on Russian history going back a thousand years. Um, so the Putin interview was kind of less culturally impactful than a lot of people either hoped or dreaded. But what was really kind of a smash hit or a surprise hit even was Tucker Carlson doing these very short digestible clips of him doing several different things in Moscow, like walking around on the streets of Moscow saying, well, these streets, I don't see a lot of people, you know, songed out on fentanyl. That's pretty weird. Like, isn't, isn't fentanyl addiction normal? Isn't that what a normal country has? I mean, it's normal in America. Same with, the, he took a ride through the um, Moscow subway and he said like, 
the subway is pretty clean, like the trains look like they work. There's not people smoking crack in in the subway. That's pretty novel. Um, and then finally, this was really sort of the coup de gras. He went to the now Siberian-owned, like, Ersatz McDonald's. And he had a cheeseburger, or a or two cheeseburgers even, and, you know, a Coke and some fries. And he said, wow, this is, this is pretty good. Like, the Russians have cheeseburgers just as we do. It's just that they're cheaper and there's no GMO food. And for whatever reason, this really, really kicked the hornet's nest. People went... Uh, people tried exceedingly hard to use statistics and so on to prove that actually Russia is the evil empire. Like, Russia is super poor, nothing works, it's full of crime, like, the police don't come when you call them. And who do you really believe? Me or your lying eyes? Yeah, the statistics thing, I, I might comment on that, because I, I put up some um, statistics on Twitter. I tried actually to do some PPP adjustments um, for Russia, there, there were some interesting results. I don't think they're they're as interesting as people were making out. Basically, I found that you know it, it certainly is pretty impressive. I think uh, Tucker said he got his his grocery shopping, as the Americans say, for twenty five percent the price um, as he would have got in a city in America. And if you compare that, you know, the Moscow income to the New York income, which I thought was a fair comparison. Uh, the Russians are getting a pretty good bang for their buck in terms of their quote-unquote groceries. So I think uh, Tucker's um, intuition when he went grocery shopping, I think the same probably holds for his burger adventures, um, was pretty good. That despite the uh, the lower um, the lower wages in the city, that um, that it, it still was a pretty good deal. Um, if the country was substantially poorer on a food basis, you'd expect you know you get twenty five percent the price. But, you know, you only have an eighth the income or something. But really what I found interesting about that whole debate, which was mainly kind of, um, uh, I'd say, conservative, economically focused liberals, conservative, uh, liberal conservatives, you might say, in D.C., at places like National Review and so on. What I found really interesting on that was they set their own benchmark so low. You'd think they'd say, oh, that's completely ridiculous. There's absolutely no way you can even compare the two. Rather, they were trying to argue Russia isn't better than us. Russia isn't richer than us. And that was such a strange thing because, look, no matter what you do with your crazy PPP adjustments or, you know, if Tucker's intuition was right that for a relatively poorer country, you got a pretty good deal on groceries. I think he was. No one's arguing that Russia's richer than America. It's just not. So the very, even the premises of the debate, in a sense, were absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, and, and on top of that, like, some of the parts that were harder to quantify, like, okay, do you have drug addicts on public transportation, which is, you know, maybe you can't really quantify that in dollars and cents, but in terms of do I live in a functioning society or not, that stuff is, it's not irrelevant by any measure. And, and people were saying, well, you know, the Moscow subway, it's just this Potemkin village, like the real problem is, is being hidden away. And it's like, okay, so maybe there are crack smokers, in the Moscow subway, but they're only using like an invisibility cloak from Harry Potter. Like they're invisible, soundless, smellless crack smokers. Like it's, it just became ridiculous. 
And the other thing here is, in some sense, the truth actually doesn't matter. We could put up a counterfactual here and say that, like, what? take North Korea. Let's say Tucker Carlson visited North Korea in 2002 at sort of the apex of, you know, you had the Disney Channel, you know, doing kids shows about pledging loyalty to the stars and tribes and so on. Like it was, it wasn't wokeness back then. It was state mandated patriotism. And it had, didn't really need to be mandated either because everyone was a patriot. Like it came natural to people. Even if North Korea was twice as rich as America and North Korea had twice as big hamburgers as America in 2002, Tucker Carlson could bring back photographic like evidence of the massive North Korean hamburgers. Nobody would believe him. They would simply say, yeah, well, you made it up because I know America is the best country in the world. I don't need proof. I don't need to see your photographs of the North Korean hamburgers and the North Korean prosperity. I know my country is better. I don't need to see the figures. The moment you have to try to say to people that no longer believe in, in the stories, in the mythology, well, look, if you consult these figures, you've already lost. It's too late at that point. Um, and so we went, and, and this Tucker Carlson commented on this himself, that the trip to Moscow was really radicalizing. That's the word he used, radicalizing, in a way he did not expect going to Moscow. And that radicalizing aspect had nothing to do with him listening to some history essay from Professor Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin and going, oh yeah, like I really agree with uh, um, Yaroslav the Wise now. No, it was just the experience of seeing the evil empire up close and realizing that all of the things that America was supposed to be better at, America was better at 40 or 40 years ago, but now those things, they no longer existed. Yeah, I think he hit a nerve because um, because of the recent inflation, just, I mean, we don't want to have a totally economic discussion. We definitely don't want to get into the national review habit of trying to get an exact purchasing power parity uh, adjustment on a tasty that's it cheeseburger. But I think it's I think it's speaking to a lot of people. I mean, there was a Bloomberg article out like two weeks ago, um, which showed kind of a standard grocery store shopping receipt in America. Um, and if you've if you've lived there recently, even I lived there before the pandemic, um, it does feel like food's an awful lot more expensive. Um, so I can only imagine what it means for it to have um, have gone up even more. Um, and just to give you some sense, I'll just read one or two items. But this is what most people see when they see inflation that maybe people with more of an economic or a macro brain don't really consider. Like orange juice has gone up from January 2020 from about $2.32 to $3.67 in October 2023. Six pack of soda, $4.33 to $6.77. Uh, coffee, $4.17 to $6.18. 
Uh, white bread, $1.35 to $2, something similar for eggs. I mean, these are these are increases that you just would look at your receipt if you're in any way income constrained and go, ouch, you know? So I think, I think that, I just want to give the context there that the Americans have just gone through a massive cost of living crisis, a cost of living crisis that is very much so partly due to the war in Ukraine, which was the very reason that Tucker was there to interview the president of Russia, and so they're looking at this, and then they look at Russia, and they go, they were supposed to be destroyed by a bunch of sanctions, but Tucker's telling me that tasty That's It burgers are cheaper, like substantially cheaper than McDonald's, and my ground beef has gone up from $3.89 to $5.23. So yeah, I mean, the US may, on every metric, still be richer than Russia, but it's it's an invidious consumption. It's an invidious um, uh, comparison, not an absolute one. And they're saying, geez, we got, you know, we went into this war and everything like that, and we were told one thing, and a totally different thing has happened. I think that's really why that, um, that clip started to go around. In what sense, Malcolm, do you think that the kind of the incensed reaction almost that... Uh, I think we all saw on Twitter uh, from uh, Tucker Carlson's visit to the supermarket in Moscow and also the um, the uh, Russian uh, McDonald's analog. In what sense do you think that that incensed reaction wasn't just the fact that he was showing life was okay and good and positive within Russia, which, you know, I think some people object to on the principle that it goes against their narrative that kind of Russia is a kind of an an evil or you know authoritarian place where people live kind of uh, you know grim lives of uh, you know kind of stoic poverty essentially but also because also because it touched a nerve you know the you know the foundation of America's story is or, or, or the foundation at least of its its modern story is one of consumerism, isn't it? It's it, it, it's this idea that the U.S. is is somewhere that you can consume a lot and and a high level of consumption, whether it be food from supermarkets or or fast food joints, or whether it be you know like other consumer items. You know, Americans have huge refrigerators compared to those we have in the UK. I mean, Americans have big TVs and they always did. And, you know, Americans have big cars that consume lots of gas. Um, and this kind of consumer society, this idea of, of consumption being a good in and of itself, um, you know, really traveled to Western Europe at least. Uh, and it became one of the founding principles. I mean, to the extent when the US went through one of its most kind of uh, shocking and uh, catastrophic events of recent years, the the 9-11 attacks on the twin World Trade Center towers in New York. Um, one of the, the, the suggestions that the then President George W. Bush made to the American people, it wasn't to kind of, you know, remain stoic and understand we'll get through this and we'll mourn for people. It was go buy things in shops, you know? And I understand there was a... I understand there was an economic need. He didn't need kind of panic. He didn't need people kind of saving and being frightened. But, you know, this idea that you would go buy things in shops because that was the foundation of what Americans did. It wasn't like keep calm and carry on as the British did in the war. It was keep calm and continue consuming. Whereas now we see videos of Russia 
and actually they have a pretty good consumer lifestyle it seems they they, they have the i mean the supermarket to me it wasn't just that you know the bill was cheap at the end of it they had loads of stuff loads of, if you if you actually watch closely there's loads of fresh produce loads of different options you know you can obviously buy 16 different varieties of white flour and you know a hundred different varieties of potato chips and you know they've got plenty of choice plenty of um freely available food you know they have decent fast food shops i mean who, who knew that the russians would be able to make mediocre junk food just as well as the americans it's a perhaps shouldn't come as much of a shock but i, I think maybe it touched a nerve that the kind of the foundations of modern america it, it was like well hang on a second this is what we this is our thing this is what we do right it's, it's like but they, these guys do it better it would be like sparta finding kind of more fanatical and well-trained you know soldiers in ancient greece somehow right yes because at the end of the day um americans have in in many ways after the 1970s crisis at least when the old sort of much more egalitarian America um, basically died, uh, the new America that took over and that didn't really have the same sort of frontier mentality where you could just pack up your bags and leave um, in the way that like America of the 19th century had. Like the new thing, the compromise in the same way that the Soviet Union was founded on this millenarian, really quite, like, how do I put this? Like non-materialist communism where people would transcend the limitations of, of the flaws of humanity, the limitations of human society and, and turn into something more than humans. Like this was what you saw in the 1920s which then was put on pause during the Second World War for obvious reasons, but then started dying by the 1950s, seriously. And after that, you had Nikita Khrushchev saying, we're going to bury you in the West. Like our Soviet system, sure, we're not going to become like new Soviet men because we can't figure out how to make that work. Um, but we are going to outproduce you. We are going to show that communism is a much more efficient economic system than you. So while you're sort of cruising around in like 10 year old cars or whatever, we're going to have airships or helicopters privately owned. Uh, we're going to have flying cars and, you know, the best sort of washing machines that humanity can build. He told Richard Nixon when Nixon was vice president and visited uh, Moscow, he told Nixon that we'll we, we'll wave to you as we pass you by. Like he said, we'll you know we'll say goodbye, right? Yeah, and and contrast this with the very early Soviet Union, where they tried abolishing Christmas because it's this you know, like you know, it's a capitalist materialist institution and whatever. And then they realized that, like, their kids are just, like, their parents, most of them, they have kids, and their kids are kind of disappointed. And, you know, an, a real Bolshevik should be able to transcend, like, these old petty bourgeois modes of 
you know, the oppressive nuclear family. So, but then they realize, oh, sh oh, shucks, I'm human. Like, I'm a mom, I'm a dad. And I can't really step outside of that. So they abolish Christmas and then they put in like this renamed, uh, you know, they, they, they have like this fig leaf of, well, this is a new Soviet Christmas. It's not like the capitalist Christmas, but it's just the same thing. Because like they can't deal with their children being disappointed. So transcending humanity falls by the wayside because like all of them are human. None of them can figure out how to transcend humanity. Um, they're still they they're still jealous and you know like all the things that humans are so again you turn from messianic millenarian communism like the 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 kingdom without tears without sadness or death and then you say well we're gonna have better washing machines once you have a society that says we're gonna have better washing machines you live and die by those washing machines. So, so I think that point's worth uh, hi highlighting on. So uh, if we think of this in terms of kind of a, a tipping point, in a sense, I mean, we're not really saying here um, that America's got substantially poor and Russia's got really rich. Um, we are saying that the Tucker Carlson thing activated something in people. It clearly did. I think we've kind of rationally explained what that is. But what you're alluding to here is that actually it's not really about how much burgers you stuff down your neck. It's actually, and, and how much those burgers cost, although that can be annoying. It's actually, this is a, this is a, um, this is the almost the legitimation. Uh, this is a legitimation narrative um, uh, about the economy. That 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 if you reduce your economy, as you say, to washing machines in the Soviet Union, and we've been there for longer in the West, and America's been probably the society that pushed pushed this out the quickest. Then it's not really that you don't have any washing machines anymore. It's that it's that you're trying to co co continuously hit the hit the target. Uh, legitimation narrative in a sense um, that, uh, that that you should be. So what's your sense that that why is there something going wrong in the American legitimation narrative now? I mean, no one is starving and people can still eat loads of burgers, right? Yeah, well, well all of the problems that American society has, the massive homelessness crisis, the, you know, drug addicts on the subway, like the feeling that law and order is breaking down, like the mass migration crisis, the forever wars in the Middle East, the fact that nobody, like everyone hates Congress. Congress has like a 10% approval rating now. People feel that the political system is rigged. They feel that their votes don't matter and empirical research bears this out. Nobody denies that the U.S. has this long litany of problems. But what people say is, yeah, well, we are still the, the only game in town. There is no alternative. Because on the other side of the Iron Curtain in the Empire of Evil, people, you know, I don't know, like they eat their own shoe leather. Like they're cannibals. They, they, don't, they don't live like normal civilized people. So you can complain about all the junkies, but what's the alternative? Either pick between junkies or no hamburgers. So our system, for all its flaws, it's the best system in the world because it's the only system where you can get those hamburgers. 
people aren't mad that the Russians are beating us in the hamburger race. Like, where will we be in 10 years? Like, they'll have better hamburger technology. People are disappointed because all of the things that are bad and are, are getting worse, the excuse for why they are the only game in town has been revealed to be a lie. So if Tucker Carlson's visit to Moscow and specifically a Moscow fast food uh, purveyor and a grocery store has damaged the U.S. sense of its own kind of national story, the uh, the sense of its own national self-worth in terms of the things that it does well as a nation. And there is really not much to replace that. How does that fit in with one of the other things that you've spoken about, which was the strange way in which Osama bin Laden's Letter of America, which is now almost a quarter of a century old, suddenly went viral a few months ago on TikTok where young kids were reading this and, you know, whether it be through a kind of a lack of critical thought or whether it be through the general attractiveness of it had, you know, suddenly decided that they felt that it explained quite a lot and they were kind of advising other people just to sit down and read this. I mean, do the two sides of this link in any way, Malcolm? Yes, I mean, they are two sides of a single sort of legitimation crisis for a society. And so for people who aren't familiar with the resurgence of Osama bin Laden's letter to America, this was a letter published uh, by the New York Times, I think, republished by The Guardian, at least, uh, in 2002, if memory doesn't fail me something in the order of nine months of the 9-11 attacks. And so people, there was like a brief debate about like whether it's appropriate to publish a letter by someone like Osama bin Laden, given, you know, he was um, responsible, or so it was claimed, for the 9-11 attacks. Uh, but people, you know, didn't really spend that much time discussing it because what was the problem? Like, this is a historical document. It's it's good that it's out there. It's useful for people in a free democracy to be able to read this and form their own conclusions. So, of course, we're going to publish this letter uh, describing why 9-11 happened. And, you know, it remained unread for about 20 years, even more. And then it suddenly became massively viral. And as a response to it becoming massively viral, The Guardian deleted it because it's, it was supposedly more dangerous. The wounds from 9-11 were far more fresh 20 years after being inflicted compared to nine, uh, nine months. Uh, what that speaks to is not that time works in reverse if you're like the family member of someone who died in 9-11. So things get more controversial the longer like time passes. No, it's that the West was self-confident in 20, 2002. It was not self-confident 20 years later. So what was permissible for people to read and you didn't expect them to get crazy ideas, for another generation you couldn't be quite sure. And so 
The reason Osama bin Laden's letter to America circulated was for a specific and, and like a truncated part. Like people didn't read the whole letter. They didn't care about the whole letter. They cared about him saying that actually, you know, we are mad at you, America, for Israel-Palestine. Like this is why Muslims are mad at America. And people read that and said, oh my God, like... This guy that we've been taught is an evil guy, like a villain, a baddie. He was actually the hero all along. I don't consider that to be a particularly, how do I say it? Like, it's not a particularly nuanced or fair and balanced point of view. I don't think it's particularly correct either. And it's not a view these people would have had unless... Uh, and. Uh, outside of the specific context in which this video went viral. And that context was essentially Osama bin Laden being the only guy on the playing field, the only guy on the football pitch, as it were, even attempting to offer an explanation for what all of these people were seeing playing out on, you know, they were seeing the clips of maimed children in Gaza and so on on social media, they were looking at the casualty figures and there was nothing in like the Western story that could explain this because, and, and this is not really, I'm not making a polemical point. I'm not making a point of, um, how do I put this? Like I'm, I'm not making some sort of value judgment. It is simply an accepted empirical reality that if you look at like the amount of civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip compared to Ukraine, um, the former is several orders of magnitude, like a, a ridiculous number of orders of magnitude, grander than the uh, um, the latter, and there's not really that much of an ability for politicians and pundits in the West to explain why one is a genocide or why China's treatment of the Uyghurs is a genocide, but Gaza isn't. Nobody has a real explanation. I'm not saying no such explanation exists. I'm not making a value judgment about that whatsoever. I'm completely agnostic about that. Because the point here is not what is correct. The point here is about legitimacy. And if you cannot explain something and people can't understand it, they look at the story being told about the West being the guardian of human rights and fighting against the evil empires like China and Russia who bomb hospitals and just practice all of these really um, evil things that go against international law. These discrepancies are extremely damaging for your legitimacy. And so Osama bin Laden, again, was the only guy offering some sort of like, okay, here is my narrative about why the West is acting in this way. Um, and that speaks to a massive sort of legitimation crisis because these people, they've never, like Boris Jeltsin in an American supermarket, that stuff happened 15 years before they were born. It doesn't matter to them. And they've never really experienced the America that wasn't like 
basically in a sort of permanent crisis. They've never seen an America before like this um, recent bout of serious inflation outside of like zero interest rate policies. They were, you know, five years old or whatever when the great financial crisis happened. I was 19. So I remember the world, like the West that expected to have more hamburgers than the other guy. For them, for Zoomers, Generation C, that stuff doesn't mean anything. They've never had such expectations. But what they have been taught are all these, you know, liberal values. And that thing has, like, belief in that has really, really become quite hard, even for people who want to believe in them. You have to do a lot of double think at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think to talk about the Osama bin Laden phenomenon, which I agree with you, I think it was way too, um, I think it was it was way too skated over and ignored. I I think the reason is, as you emphasize, it's an age problem. The people who do the talking on these issues, the youngest of them are our age, probably in their 30s. And we just go, oh, they're doing weird stuff because they're woke or something like that. And, you know, kids can be woke and kids can be weird and all that. We get it. But, you know, once it passes a certain point, you sort of are just an old man going, oh, what the kids believe doesn't mean anything. Like at a certain point, what the kids believe does mean something. And you're just being kind of an old codger if you if you insist that it doesn't. But I think to, to understand the Osama bin Laden thing, you have to understand that the Gaza war, for whatever reason, probably a, a combination of social media and what you said, that these kids have been brought up ultra-liberal in schools and so on. They've taught, actually, as well, to, to racialize an awful lot of stuff. And if you racialize the, the Gaza-Israel conflict in a crude way, you come away with one set of answers, obviously. And I think this is this has basically led them. It's led them into a very unusual position where I, I have a poll here from Harvard Harris um, that shows that uh, in America, and I want to emphasize this to our British and European listeners, Americans tend to be far, far more pro-Israeli than Europe. But in America, 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds say that in the conflict, do they, they support Hamas more than Israel, not Palestine, Hamas more than Israel. So there's definitely been, and of course, that is due, again, the the old codger response to this is like, how can they not understand what a mass is? And fine, you, fine, okay, but like, stop making moral judgments for a minute and try and understand what's going on. Because, as you say, there is no alternative framing for these young people. They, they first of all go, well, I sympathize with the, what, what appears to me to be the victim, especially the, the victim in the poorer racial minority. And then it's very, very easy to slip from that into a mass, especially given the fact that, you know, all this kind of media is bombarding them, conflating the two in terms of casualties and so on. So that's kind of, I think that's where it kind of creeps in. And then once you've kind of, once... There's a, there's a very subtle thing going on here, I think, which is that, you know, societies all have a kind of Manichean view of the world, a, a world of good and evil. And there's always somebody who's uh, designated as evil, rightly or wrongly. Um, if a substantial portion of your population or even a substantial portion of your youth starts identifying with the, uh, the entity that is considered evil, where does it end? And so if Hamas is considered evil and they've already 
as we might call it, taken the Hamas pill, it's only one more step to take the bin Laden pill. Yeah, I mean, the bin Laden thing was very interesting because, again, like this was the big, like this was Darth Vader. This was the the main villain of, of the millennial generation in the West. And you could maybe sort of say, oh, yeah, like I'm edgy. So I say, evil, be thy my good, be thy my good. And some people, a very vanishingly small minority, said, oh, yeah, I'm with Bin Laden because I like evil. But nobody thought it even possible to sort of flip the script around and say, well, you know, this guy that you say is evil, he's actually the good guy. Um, and what people need to understand is that the Western culture that we live in, it's not the first culture in human history. Like we've had a lot of different cultures, most of which no longer exist. So we have various intellectual, historical, empirical tools to diagnose, to troubleshoot these things, almost like you have a television that doesn't turn on. And so this this particular Osama bin Laden thing, it's not, wow, the kids are just crazy. There's There's got to be like radiation or something. No, there's a specific term for what's going on here. And that is the process by which cultures... Um, are uh, propagated from one generation to another is called um, mimesis. Uh, and essentially, mimesis is the, the same sort of manner in which a child learns to speak a language, which is you look at your parents and you imitate them. That's how cultures are also a learned thing. And so once people start going, oh, my God, Osama bin Laden, like, he's the good guy. I'm realizing now that I've been lied to. That is a catastrophic breakdown of the process of mimesis. That is a failure for the older generation to actually carry over their own sort of cultural frames of reference here towards the younger generation. And so, like, if you have a kid, you put out the kid in the woods and he doesn't learn to speak. Like, it's it's a pretty easy sort of mechanical process to understand. Like, okay, you don't teach that kid to speak English. Nobody puts in the work. And then when he's 10, he can't speak English. Like, it's not a mystery. It's just a failure. You have to do something. Nobody's done it. So it hasn't been done. And this is happening now in the West. And moralizing about it, it's really quite beside the point. Like, again, put out the kid in the woods, don't teach him English, and then say, well, I think English is a great and beautiful language. Well, maybe it is, but it's kind of not relevant. Like this, again, is a quite easy mechanical process. You want someone to speak a language, you teach someone to speak a language. If you don't teach him, he doesn't learn. And it doesn't matter if English is then like a colonial language or a beautiful language or an ugly language or a bad or a good language. It's like the work hasn't been put in. And so the transfer from one generation to another hasn't occurred. And once you have these breakdowns of mimesis, which have happened repeatedly throughout history before, what you tend to get is 
a real massive failure uh, of like a social failure, compounding social failure. And what you also get, generally speaking, like you get a lot of revolutions. So one famous example when mimesis broke down in a very systematic way was in, you know, Russia at the start of the 19th century, or sorry, the 20th century. Why? Because you had all of these people living out in sort of these villages, and then they get to the towns because Russia is industrializing. And the culture of the Russian village, it's no longer like adapted to living neck neck and neck, like packed like sardines in some dirty factory town, working not in the fields, but in some factory. Like the failure to uh, actually carry on peasant culture once people no longer live in peasant villages, it's pretty total. And a lot of really chaotic um, consequences follow from that. Just to understand this process better, Malcolm, why would that happen? Why would that failure um, occur in somewhere like Russia? As it, why was there a failure in one place and not the other? And why do you believe there's being a, that there's a failure in the United States or, or, or in the broader West now? All transitions from peasant society to industrial society necessarily involve like a breakdown in mimesis for the simple reason that. Like, we're no longer peasants. Uh, we don't think like peasants. We don't act like peasants. Like, that would be very weird if we in the 21st century acted like, you know, 16th century, 18th century English peasants. So uh, I, I sense that, like, what you're really asking here is, like, why was the process so explosive in Russia compared to... The British example where it was more drawn out, even though it was like problematic and you had cultural critics writing about like the massive sort of transition mentally people had to make. Well, and the answer there. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, I, I mean, there was, you know, poetry and politicians and uh, philosophers all, you know, considered these issues in Britain but it didn't lead to a kind of a mass societal freakout and an explosion of kind of violence and revolution and hatred, uh, which we saw in, in in Russia. I mean, there may be cultural reasons for that in Russia, but specifically, you know, you know, on the issue of mimiasis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, because I think you know, if you're saying that we're seeing a breakdown of this in the U.S. now, and drawing. It, you know, uh, an analogy with, with Russia and some other kind of pre-revolutionary societies, I think it's important to kind of, you know, draw out and be a little bit specific about, you know, what it is, right? It's The, the, the reason things went really pear-shaped in Russia compared to Britain, like if you really want to sort of uh, pare it down, it's because industrialization in Russia was much more compressed. It was much less of a natural process and much more of a, um, how do I put this? Like it was, it was a centralized process 
that was extremely sort of traumatic and played out over a single generation. Um, which means that like it's it's a much more dramatic breakdown in mimesis because again you're experiencing all of these massive shifts that might have taken the English 80 or 90 years in 15 or 20 years. Obviously, that's going to be... It's like riding a roller coaster. If you go through the roller coaster in two minutes or 10 seconds, like it's the same roller coaster, but the, the impact of G-forces on the human body is going to be quite different. Okay, so we're seeing kind of this bubble up to the surface now, or at least uh, that's what it appears to me. We were talking about uh, having a discussion, perhaps, of the uh, young man, Air Force uh, member, I guess, who uh, set himself on fire in in front of the Israeli embassy, not in any uh, coy way. He really lit himself on fire and died. I mean, I'll just give my impression of this and the responses to it. I think that the response among older people, again, this feels to me like uh, it's not me, it's the kids that are wrong sort of vibes and, you know, dismissing anything that comes out of uh, any anyone under 30, which is just, hist- it's a classically uh, poor mistake to make, uh, especially when we talk about rapid social change or potential even for social unrest leading, uh, going right up to the scale of potential revolution or anything like that. Um, my impression of it was people wanted to kind of pathologize this issue, um, and, you know, just say, oh, he's crazy or whatever. And like crazy people do crazy things sometimes, sure. And if you're going to, you know, light yourself on fire, uh, I don't think you're probably the happiest, happiest bunny in the field. Um, but you know, this was, this is something that in the past we have taken very seriously when we see it in other societies. Obviously the most, uh, obvious example of that was the Buddhist monk who lit himself on fire in protest of the DM government in Vietnam, which began the end of the DM government and DM's assassination, uh, in Vietnam. Um, we also probably recall in more recent days that the self-immolation of a shopkeeper I think in Egypt, correct me if I'm wrong, sparked off the, in Tunisia, sparked off the um, Arab Spring. Um, So when we see these images come from elsewhere, we go, wow, when people start lighting themselves on fire, not for some random reason, but for stated political reasons, that's usually a a point that, that's usually a a signal that politics in that country is reaching some sort of a, a tipping point of some sort. Um, as I said, we've tried to pathologize that. Now, I understand that for psychological reasons. Uh, I also understand it from kind of a, you know, almost public security point of view. We really don't want, you don't want to advertise the teen suicides too much or loads of teenagers start committing suicide. I get it. Um, but at the same time, you know, there has to be a space to look at that and say, is this part of something else, as we say, with this breakdown in narrative structure that seems to me to be coming more and more intense, a lot quicker. It all seems to be kind of happening quicker. Um, so what's your kind of what's your sense of the of the self-immolation that we saw recently? Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. I, I debated with some some people in America when the Osama bin Laden thing was occurring. 
um, because at that point it was really clear that we had a breakdown of sort of legitimation in the eyes of a lot of young people. Uh, and if one looked at all of the people saying, wow, my eyes have been opened by Osama bin Laden, I've been lied to my entire life. These weren't leftists, most of them. Like, I come from the left. Um, the left is massively overrepresented by people with college degrees um, in specific, like, urban centers. And on TikTok, it was a lot more heterogeneous, I should say. Like, some of these people had, you could tell, yes, these people have the social sort of symbols, um, habits that they could be a part of the left. But maybe even the majority didn't. Um, so, so, but when I was discussing this, they said, okay, so even if it's true that young people no longer believe in the viability of the Soviet Union or in socialism. They don't take scientific communism seriously or the American equivalent in this case. Like they don't, they no longer believe in anything motivating the existence of the Soviet Union. So what? Like what's going to happen? Like they're all just going to sit at home and play video games, right? At that point, and this was, you know, four months ago or something, I was very doubtful that they would sit at home and may play video games. Because, and this goes particularly hard if you're young. If you're an older guy, you can sort of coast along on a sort of detached um, irony, like nothing matters, I don't care, look at me. Like this is very easy for like Gen Xers and Millennials. And this is also, there's a biological explanation for this almost, which is as you get older, you produce less testosterone. So you become less violent by default. Even if you are a violent criminal, once you reach your 40s, you stop being a violent criminal just almost by default in most cases. Um, this is not true for a guy that's 21 years old. Like he, everything is fighting against taking a detached view. If you're a 21 year old guy or 25 year old guy, a lack of meaning, a lack of sense of like why you exist, why your society looks like it does, that is intolerable to a lot of people. It is so intolerable that the, the alternative, which is creating meaning forcefully, using violence, if that's what it takes, that's the almost the default solution in a lot of cases. That was my sense a couple of months ago. And this self-immolation, to me, really illustrates that this is where America is heading. Because of the inability for like liberal society to really justify the claims to believing in liberalism or human rights or having more hamburgers or whatever, people are bereft of meaning and they will use forceful extreme measures in some cases to create that meaning. Um, and this is only one of the consequences you can expect in a failure of mimesis, failure of 
uh, state legitimacy, as we're seeing in the U.S. The fact that this guy was a active duty guy in the like an serving in the Air Force. That is a catastrophe for the U.S. military. It's it's an unmitigated disaster, which is also the sense I've gotten from talking to people serving in the military right now. This is the problem, the the last thing anyone in the U.S. needed right now. Um, and to put that into context, you have to understand that after the uh, very contentious 2020 election and in and the inauguration of Joe Biden, the U.S. military essentially entered a period of, I wouldn't say like purging, but somewhere close. Um, it began before COVID, really, um, and it was then motivated in 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 terms of basically. We have a lot of white rage in this country. We have a lot of angry, maybe even fascistic domestic terrorists, and they love their guns and they love their, you know, opposition to abortion. And they love like voting for this really bad guy, Donald Trump. And like these people are potentially a fifth column. So and and like this anxiety paranoia about essentially like people in the military skewing right being potentially politically unreliable then married with covid hysteria in a really toxic way which um led to maybe the u.s losing the equivalent of like two divisions or something of 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 military personnel from people not re-upping or like demanding or being forced into administrative separation. Well, you never really got out of that. Like a lot of people in the US military really truly regret that now, but they've not really been able to get over the paranoia anxiety they have about like, can we really trust all of these deplorables, quote unquote? The guy that lit himself on fire was supposed to be the reliable part of America, the part representing the future, someone believing not in, you know, white rage, but in platforming marginalized voices and whatever you want, like, and by all accounts, the guy that lit himself on fire, he was a progressive, he believed in decolonialism and all of that stuff. So if you can't have those people in the military and you can't have people who vote for Donald Trump in the military, who are you left with? You seem left with the very boomers that are isolating themselves from every single group. I mean, that's honestly what's going on here. They're isolating themselves on every single issue. They want to, it seems to me that they want to maintain as if an amber, a world that no longer exists anymore, where you can, you know, be a liberal progressive and support uh, Israel in their escapade in the Middle East without it getting too much. And you can also, you know, oppose Russia and you can make sure all the racists 
don't have any guns in the military or whatever. And they've just kind of tried to create this fantasy world. And what they've actually created is a mess. I mean, is, is am I getting this right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I've made this point, I'm pretty sure, in, in the previous episode here. But one of the problems the U.S. military faced in the Middle East going into this like post-October 7 crisis is that even on their newest aircraft carrier, in a sort of hair-trigger scenario where this carrier could conceivably be involved in combat operations, you know, in two hours from now or whatever, uh, and this was the expectation going in. Like, we're, sa- we're sailing to the Middle East, we could be at war on extremely short notice. Even in under those circumstances, the carrier was lacking hundreds of sailors. It was barely able to operate because of this massive manpower shortage. And all of the ships that then left are basically like they cannot be replaced because the U.S. doesn't have enough sailors and it doesn't really have the capacity to do turnaround like on maintenance to actually have ships ready for marines that are supposed to be ready to respond to crises. This was before this guy who was supposed to be from the part of America that represented the future, not the past, said, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going to, you know, douse myself in kerosene and light myself on fire while yelling free Palestine. Like, I will no longer be a party to genocide, is what this person said. So you already had a catastrophic, really like unworkable personnel deficit. And now you're making that much worse because that other half of America no longer believes in the mission, no longer believes in the society. This is not a minor thing. This is not like the Black Knight in... Um, in Monty Python having one arm lopped off and saying, well, I've got two legs and I've got another arm, so like losing one arm, that's no big deal, right? This is the the US military already having lost uh, both arms and one leg, you know, jumping around on one foot and then having the lost leg lopped off, essentially. I don't think anyone inside the institution really believes you can turn around the recruitment situation anymore. Like, who could you possibly even appeal to at this point? There's no one left. Like, maybe you could gather up all of the young people in America that vote for the Libertarian Party, like all 20 of them, and say, well, this is the American army now. But but this legitimation crisis, it's not something for academics to discuss on some seminar or whatever, like, oh, well, this is all the world of ideas. No, it's something that is really going to ruin and has already in part ruined um, the ability for the US to basically sustain itself. The 2020 and that mess of an election, that was the Gaza war 
for the right. That was part the time when like half of America stopped believing in America essentially. And recruitment collapsed as a result. Well, now the other half has stopped believing in America. And there's like nobody has a plan to fix that. Like there's there's no there's no possible way to fix it, to be honest. I mean, it does seem like a legitimation crisis on multiple fronts. We're not taking it seriously. We, we don't want to see it. We don't want to look in the mirror. My sense is the older a person gets, the less they want to see this. The younger a person gets, the more it becomes obvious. And the older that you get, the more you're inclined to dismiss these things as is the want of people who get older. So let's try and be objective about it. But where does it go? Look, I mean, I'll just give my kind of you know, working worldview up until actually, frankly, very recently. And my working worldview was basically that the West was entering a phase of stagnation, a phase, to use our Soviet examples, a phase of kind of Brezhnevian stagnation, um, where, you know, everyone became kind of cynical with the with the system. Everyone is already kind of cynical with the system. And things kind of grind on. There's not much that much hope in the future. Um, what people forget an awful lot about the Brezhnev era is people party a lot. Um, people dr- drank a lot of alcohol under Brezhnev. And, you know, that wasn't always kind of like just sitting at the table and de- drinking yourself into depression as kind of we were made out. If you actually read books on this, the Brezhnev era was kind of fun in a lot of ways. Um, so that's kind of where I thought we were at. But, you know, I I think it's compelling to at least consider that there's evidence that there's a sort of an acceleration or a quickening going on here. But like, where do you think where do you think this leads? Are are we in? I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Are we entering a pre-revolutionary moment? It wouldn't be the first time that global conflict or a war or dare I say a war lost would trigger a pre-revolutionary situation. Are you, what's your thinking on this? I think it's a bit too late in the day to talk about a pre-revolutionary situation, honestly. Like, the pre-revolutionary situation is the period of stagnation. It's the period where all of these flaws are kind of widely accepted, but people are like they're sitting at home watching television. Like nobody even gets the idea that anything matters to the point where they go out and practice auto cremation in order to get the movement going. Once you get the auto cremation, that's when you move from, you know, road, oh, sorry, not roadrunner, like Wiley E. Kojode from the, the um, like the cartoon, like that. Uh, prairie dog or whatever like stagnation is when he's run um he's like run off the cliff and you have this comedic movement moment where gravity doesn't work because he hasn't looked down yet we we were in that mo- in that situation i would say since trump descended the escalator because what Trump did was say, like, we have all of these problems, the problems are getting worse, like, things suck, and nobody's talking about it, except for me. At this point, what we are actually seeing is a cascading crisis, a crisis cascade, in the sense that this is exactly what what happened to the Soviet Union after people punched a hole in the Berlin Wall. In a normal time, like, you know, so what if the Berlin Wall falls? Just send in the tanks, you know, shoot a couple of protesters, 
it's not a big deal. What are they going to do? But the Berlin Wall happened at a time where all of this dysfunction and malaise and sort of um, contradiction within the Soviet system had built up to such a, an extent that it only took another straw to break the camel's back. The system no longer had the flexibility or the energy or the intellectual capacity to address any problems or put out any fires. Well, what do we have in the West right now? We have Joe Biden saying, yeah, these strikes against Yemen aren't working, but they're going to continue. Are you going to figure out something that works? No. We're going to keep doing something that we admit doesn't work. Um, so, like the sum of all of this is, there, there's this old saying that what can't be extended forever or what can't go on forever will simply stop at some point. Well, if the U.S. empire can't be maintained sans a military, uh, and I don't think any of you disagree with me when I say that, like, the entire U.S. like empire, the 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 world, like the trade system, like all of these international institutions, they are not going to work unless the U.S. has some sort of military credibility. Um, but the U.S. is on a trajectory where it simply can't sustain that military credibility just for personnel reasons, uh, just putting aside sort of own goals like bombing the hoodies without a plan so that can't go on and it's it's not going to go on for we're talking here not decades we're talking a couple of years and so what i would simply say here is that it was un, like the fall of the soviet union was quite unimaginable to people inside and outside the soviet union because like nobody could even conceive what that would look like. And it turns out that what that looked like, especially during the 90s, was pretty horrible. Uh, so no wonder that people weren't dreaming about, you know, the Yeltsin years before they happened. Like, who would dream about that? But we're in the same sort of quagmire. Like, we can no longer justify the system in any real systematic way. We can't really keep it going because to keep it going, you need to be able to recruit people for the military. And to be able to recruit people for the military, you need to explain what kind of society they live in and why. You need to have legitimacy. We can't sustain that anymore. So I do think that people, like, things are going to fall apart. It's not going to be the end of the world or anything. Like, the fall of the Soviet Union wasn't the end of the world nor was it the end of Poland or Russia or the Baltic states or, you know, Czechoslovakia or anything like that. But nobody at this point has a plan to keep this stuff going for very much longer. And that's not even a secret anymore. This is Multipolarity charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. 